the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Colonel Kevin Cameron, CD, former commanding officer of the 3rd Battalion, the Royal Canadian Regiment, former J3, Land Force Central Area, Joint Task Force Central. I joined in 1989, but I actually did my basic Chilliwack Officer Candidate School training starting in January of 1990, then went off to French language training before heading to Gagetown to do my Phase 2, 3, and 4 infantry training, all back-to-back from January till August, which was an interesting way to do it and certainly a, a grueling way to do it, but it worked out. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. I'd like to begin this episode by going over a little bit of feedback I've received. This was in an email dated February 19th, 2016, and it's from Brian Colgate. And he's a follower on Facebook, and he's very present in my military connections on Facebook as well. He writes, Thank you, Mike, for this interview. And he's specifically talking about the interview with Scott Patterson. He continues saying, I enjoyed listening to it last fall, right after you posted it, and have just listened to it again, now with even more attentive ears. I have saved the contents of the page along with the recently posted Remembrance on the QOR of C site, so Queen's Own Rifles of Canada site, and that site link is www.qor.com slash files slash tribute dash to dash rsm dash patterson dot pdf if anyone wants to have a look at that he continues saying clearly patty had no idea at that point that his cancer would so soon after take him from us so quickly regrettably i think he did know he just hit it very well he continues saying he's the fifth young man young to me that we have lost from the original cma su group so cma would be central militia area SU, I'm going to need some help with that acronym. So he continues listing off the names, Bruce Bamblett, Dave Keenan, Brian Gutuski, John Hasek, and now Scott Patterson. It was a fine group of young men. This loss came too closely on the heels of, only six days earlier and ten days after his death, the celebration of life for Breen Carson, the late captain of PPCLI, lost to his post-Afghanistan PTSD leaving behind a young wife and an infant daughter. Then he posts a memorial picture of Breen Carson as well. Thanks again, Mike. This is a great work you are doing. Pro Patria, Brian Colgate. So clearly Brian served with the Royal Canadian Regiment because he ends his signature with that regimental motto, which fits great with our guest today. Our guest today is... Colonel Kevin Cameron, who commanded the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment and has served with the Royal Canadian Regiment as well. I have to add that because we have seen people have to change cap badge in order to assume command. Going back to the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada, we know that Lieutenant Colonel Peter Saint-Denis has taken command going from the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada to the Royal Highland Fusiliers of Canada. So people do have to change their cap badge in order to command a regiment when the unit is in that need. However, Colonel Cameron has served exclusively in the Royal Canadian Regiment. I first became aware of the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment when I was tasked to an exercise called Follex in Germany. Follex was a very unique exercise and it was unique from my point of view since I was a newly trained private at the time and this was back in the year 1989 and having very little military experience I was thrust deeply into the hands of the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment, specifically Oscar Company 
where I served with Master Warrant Officer Oberworth, who was the company's sergeant major, and his CQ was CQ McAndrew, or Warrant Officer McAndrew. And the reason I know these names so well is because I was assigned to company headquarters for Oscar Company. So my role was ambulance security, my role was helping the cooks, my role was doing GD or storeman tasks for the CQ. Now we had trained as a formed platoon. We had a platoon commander. We had a platoon 2IC at the time, Warrant Officer Jim Fancy. And we had three section commanders. We had three sections. And we went to Germany as a formed platoon with the expectation that we would be given a platoon and we would be a complete platoon. However, to our surprise, as soon as we arrived in Germany, we were individually split up and used as individual augmentees to each of the lettered battalions. So at the time, and hopefully someone doesn't write in to correct me, but I do believe I am accurate when I say it was Mike Company, November Company, Oscar Company, which is what I was assigned to, and there was Papa Company, which was the recce company, and we had one person only assigned to that, but the rest of the platoon was split up between those platoons. Regrettably, our leadership was also split up, and they were sent to different tasks just in support of the exercise. So they were sent as observer controller tasks throughout Germany or liaison officer roles in order to support the exercise. However, they weren't employed as leaders within the platoons and within the sections. So a little bit of a disappointment there. However, the exercise was unique in the fact that it was my first experience. Well, many of it was my first experience because, as I said, I was a newly trained private at the time. But it was my first experience to mounting a railhead. In other words, all of the equipment from the company had to be loaded onto trains, including the personnel. So we had to load all of our vehicles onto flatbed cars. From there, we had to move along the rail lines in Germany. And the unique thing is that the military doesn't pay to use the rail lines, which puts them at the lowest priority for use on the rail lines. So what would happen is anytime there was a commercial train coming by, either a passenger train or a freight train, the military train had to get out of the way. So sometimes we'd be traveling eastbound and then we would stop for an hour and then we would travel westbound to get out of the way of another train. And we were constantly being routed and rerouted. And it must have been quite a challenge for the logistical people to manage during this exercise to get us to where we needed to be. We spent a number of days training, or perhaps a number of weeks training, on a base, an U.S. Army base known as Hohenfels in Germany. And then we went out onto the exercise proper, leaving the base and traveling throughout the countryside of Germany. The people, the citizens of Germany, were very receptive to our presence there. They permitted us to park in their driveways or hide in their fields or near their barn in order to be avoided from observation. Our recce people would go through. And one of the unique things of the exercise is the German citizens were happy enough to let us use their country and use their countryside for our exercise. But we were strictly prohibited from moving on weekends. So as soon as Friday evening would come, the exercise would be paused. Everybody would stop in place. We'd use that to replenish, re-gear, do a little bit of maintenance on our vehicles. And then once my Monday morning started, the exercise would resume properly again and we would continue along the last known axis of advance and continue with whatever tasks we were assigned from that point. The next time I saw 3RCR was during the 1090 days and those of us that were involved in the Canadian Infantry at the time would remember those 1090 days. So what happened, the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment was moved from Germany and they were repatriated back to Canada as a unit 
and individual augmentees were sent to the first battalion and the second battalion, but a core of leadership and workers were retained within the structure of 3RCR, and they were headquartered at Base Borden in the building that is currently occupied by the 3rd Canadian Ranger Patrol Group. From there, members of the 1090 Battalion of 3RCR were deployed to locations such as Fort York Armory or the Lincoln and Welland Armory in St. Catharines. And what would happen is the 3rd Battalion would form a battalion of 10% regular force and 90% Army Reserve, which is where the name 1090 came from. The next time I crossed paths with the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment, they were raised as the Light Infantry Battalion in Petawawa. So they were moved from Base Borden to Petawawa, where they served in the Light Infantry role, and that is the role that they continue to provide today to the Canadian Forces. And that's where our guest today comes into the picture. Colonel Kevin Cameron commanded the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment while they were working out of Canadian Forces Base Petawawa, which is now known as Garrison Petawawa, and in their current role, of light infantry, which includes a parachute capability, airborne capability to be better said or more properly said. So Colonel Cameron describes that portion of the life of the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment much better during this episode. And here's my interview with Colonel Kevin Cameron. Colonel Cameron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome, sir. Now, you and I first met when you left regimental service at 3RCR, and then you started working at the 4th Canadian Division headquarters. Yeah, that's right. I left command of 3rd Battalion RCR in 2011, came into what was then LFCA Joint Task Force Central and took over the role of J3, Right. working for Brigadier General Fred Lewis at the time. Right, and he was a previous guest on the show. I really appreciated working with him and his command team partner, Stan Stapleford, and I think that we were well led in that time and also in the subsequent command team as well. We certainly were, yes. Now, sir, I sent you the questions in advance. Are you all set to go? I'm all set to go, yes. Excellent. Can you please tell the listeners why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, for me, it was kind of a natural flow. I came from a military family. My father was a vehicle tech, retired in the late 80s as a chief warrant officer. So from a family perspective, it just seemed natural that that would be something I would go into. I got a little bit of a taste of the reserves in my high school years. I joined, similarly to my father, I joined as a vehicle tech with 28th Service Battalion. And a funny story, I didn't make much of that because I actually had an irregular enrollment that halfway through basic training, they came back to me and said I was actually too young to be in the Army. (laughs) So I, I joined at a, a very young age. I was 16 at the time, but I didn't quite meet the parameters of when I was supposed to turn 17 in that year. So it was an oversight. So I had a short stint in the reserves. And then from that point on, I had a taste of that military dynamic. And when I was done high school, I decided that was the path I was going to take, but take it in the regular force. So which path did you choose? Did you join as an officer in NCM? Did you go to RMC? No, I did join as an officer. At the time, uh, there was a program called the Officer Candidate Training Plan, OCTP. And it was open to the combat arms and the various services, so not just Army, but pilot, the navigator, and also the Mars side in the Navy. So I chose to go right in as an officer only because when I was at the recruiting center, the recruiting NCO said, you know what, your marks are strong enough in high school that why don't you consider going in as an officer? So I did so, recognizing that there wouldn't be that particular plan was direct into training and then right to a unit. So there was no university at that stage. And that fit me well at the time, just based on where I was in my mindset, I guess, when I was a young 18-year-old and what I wanted to do next, I was really looking forward to getting right into the workforce and not necessarily focusing 
focusing on academia for four years. So it was a nice fit for me, the OCTP pathway. And I chose infantry after a selection process that no longer exists now, I think. But there was a what they called the Chaos Board, Combat Arms Officer Selection Board. And people of my vintage <laughs> would recognize that title. And they sent us to Gagetown for a week and they run you through the paces of armored infantry artillery. And at the end of it, you choose one. And then uh, if they deem you worthy, they enroll you and off you go. And I chose infantry just based on my experience there. And then shortly after that, I was out in Chilliwack, BC on basic officer training. Wow. So when did your university education take place then? Because from what you're saying, it seems like you went straight out of high school, straight into being a commissioned officer in the regular force. That's correct. Yeah. In 1989, I actually did, I joined in 1989, but I actually did my basic Chilliwack officer candidate school training starting in January of 1990. Then went off to French language training, the mandated French language training at Saint-Jean before heading to Gagetown to do my phase two, three, and four infantry training all back to back from January till August, which was an interesting way to do it and certainly a, a grueling way to do it, but it worked out. So Later on in my career, while I was a company commander, uh, at the tail end of company command time with 3RCR, that was the time where it was recognized that if I was going to progress further beyond the rank of major, I would require university education. And at the time, the Army had brought in what they called the Army Officer Degree Program, which was a program that was set up with civilian universities across the country to recognize that a lot of the combat arms officers across the Army didn't have degrees because of the OCTP plan and other dynamic. And at that point, the Canadian Armed Forces and the Army mandated that university education was a requirement for all officers. So they put this program in place to address that shortfall, if I can call it a shortfall, to educate to the level that is required of the Canadian Armed Forces officership. So I went to Ottawa U for a year with uh, about nine of my colleagues who were in the same situation, and we took a a kind of a fast-tracked three-year degree program under the AODP and came away with a political science degree in 2004. Now that must have been entertaining, a bunch of majors as university students. What were you like when you joined the Canadian Forces? Well, I was a young, hard-charging young kid playing hockey and energetic, and but I wasn't all that focused on academics, as I mentioned. So I was looking for a pathway that would take me right into an exciting career, hence the choice of OCTP. And was a hockey player in high school. I was a hockey player in the local leagues. I was doing pretty well in hockey. An adventurous guy, I would say. Right. So it was kind of a natural fit, especially to go into the combat arms to find my career path there. Now, what year was that when you joined? Well, I went to the recruiting center in 1988 to apply. So that was my kind of grade 12 year. And then I actually took about a year for all the paperwork to go through and to be accepted and selected. So 1989 was when I got the offer and then went off to Seafox in Chilliwack in January, right after New Year's in January 1990. Right. And what do you recall that the world was like when you joined? Well, I'd like to say it was a lot simpler than it is now, I would suggest. I suppose some people might argue that fact, but in my view, it was. I mean, it was a tail end of the Cold War. I grew up in a military family, so I spent a lot of time in Europe as a kid. So the Cold War dynamic that the two big superpowers in the world were were very familiar to me. So when I joined, that was the mindset I joined the military with. The wall had just come down literally when I went off to training. So the world was about to change, but at that particular moment in time, I couldn't see that far ahead and and wasn't that well versed in world politics to understand how it would change. But certainly I would simplify it and say the world was a simpler place in uh, in that time. Definitely. I recall serving with 3RCR as a reserve augmentee during Follex in 1989 and going right up to the Iron Curtain and looking across the way to my opposite number in the guard tower with his AK-47 looking down at the crowd of us. Definitely a memory that I will never forget. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, sir, speaking about memories, what is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? Yeah, great question. I guess I've got two lenses to look at that. If The most memorable, I'd have to say, I'm not sure if I was fortunate enough. Should I say I was fortunate to have it while I was very young and new to the CF, or if that's a bad thing, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I can certainly say that from a memorable standpoint, my first operational tour into the former Yugoslavia would be it. And that happened very early on. I was a young lieutenant serving in 3RCR Germany and went to Croatia and Sarajevo on Op Harmony Road of Zero. And within that tour, as you will recall, the Sarajevo dynamic happened and we deployed from Croatia down to Sarajevo. And I've got to say that to this day, that mission, the particularly if I could call it the submission within the tour, and that was the redeployment down to Sarajevo to secure and open the airport and open distribution lines. I was a young 21 or 22-year-old lieutenant, and what an experience that was. It sticks with me to this day. The brotherhood of individuals that we served with together on that tour still holds fast to this day. So it is not unlike the bonds that are built in any other mission or combat or peace support operations. But for me, that really stood out as kind of a memorable moment and to this day still resides with me. And I think in a way it shaped my viewpoint and how I looked at things within the military and in the world to some degree right. very early on in my career. So as I come back to that, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or, or <laughs> not so much, but, but from my perspective, that kind of stands out as my most memorable. Now, General Lewis McKenzie was a previous guest on the show, and he spoke about that event as well. Is there an anecdote or a story that stands out in your mind from that period? Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, and this is about him personally as well. He was a great leader, by the way. I had tremendous respect for General Lou. I recall leading the convoy. I was in Racky Platoon, November Company Racky Platoon, and Peter Devlin was the company commander for us <laughs> at the time, who I also believe has been on your show, if I'm not yes, mistaken. Yes, he has. Absolutely. We had a 48-hour road move from our base in Sirac, Croatia, down to Sarajevo, and I just happened to be, because I was a Racky guy, just happened to be the lead vehicle in that convoy down. And uh, needless to say, I didn't get much sleep for 48 hours on that route. But I recall entering the airport, being greeted by the French commandos who were kind of holding it at the time, and getting onto the tarmac of the airport, and I was exhausted, of course, and literally hadn't slept in 48 hours, being hypervigilant on that road move on the way down. And I remember getting the call from my signaler, Mass Corporal Joey Richardson, and he said, the general's coming by. And I'm thinking, oh my God, the last thing I need right now is a general. I can barely keep my eyes open, right? I don't need a, are we going to do a debrief or whatever? And General Lou came up to me, said, you led the convoy down. He might or might not remember this particular moment. I don't know. But he came up to me and I did what you do as a young lieutenant with your troops. You salute him. And although it probably wasn't the wisest move to do in the tarmac of the Sarajevo airport, but I probably did because I was so tired. And he just looked at me, took one look and said, you led the convoy down, didn't you? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well done. Well, we got here safe, so that's good. He said, you're probably exhausted. I'm not here to talk to you anyway. I'm here to talk to the troops. And he kind of dismissed me in a, in a positive way to because he recognized that I was in no shape to have communication at that point, right? right. And, and to me, that was a sign of a good leader. He recognized what we had just been through, and he kind of let me go to at least put my head down for an hour before we had to do our next task. So I'll never forget that. I did have a chance to meet him in Petawala at the mess probably about 15 years ago or so now. I think I was a company commander at the time, give or take. He was there, and I recounted that little anecdote to him, and he thought it was a little bit humorous. So, yeah, <laughs> great man. I have tons of respect for him. But, again, that mission for me very early on in my life, in my military life, certainly stands out as a memorable event. So you had said you wanted to speak about your memorable experiences with two answers. What is your second answer, sir? 
Yeah, the second lens I look through it is later on in my career, and it's more of an, I don't know if accomplishment is the right word, but certainly an experience. And that was the honor that was given to me to go back to command the battalion in which I started. I consider myself very fortunate to have been given the opportunity. I mean, battalion command for an infantry officer is certainly highly sought after, and it's an appointment that doesn't come to everyone. And it's something I was very honored to be given the privilege to go back, not only to command a battalion in the regiment, but to command the 3rd Battalion, the battalion I started out in as a young 2nd Lieutenant in Germany at that particular moment. Right. So I spent my two years in Petawawa as the CO. I was very emotionally attached to the unit and in a good way. And I think because of that, because of my history in that unit, I really took everything, how can I put it? I took everything to heart, everything that unit did, the performance that we, uh, the, the performance of the soldiers and the great people in it. To me, I walked away from those two years in a way tremendously sad that I was leaving regimental duty to never come back to it after battalion command. Yes, I understand. But at the same time, feeling great that myself and my regimental sergeant major, Chief Warrant Officer Wayne Bartlett, had managed to do great things in the short time we had as a command team in that unit. And that stands out as a memorable, I guess you could say it's an accomplishment, but for me, it's more of a personal mandate or a personal memory that I take away. And what are some of the accomplishments that 3RCR achieved or the milestones that 3RCR marked during your period of command? Well, first off, when we had Wayne and I came in as the command team, and I've got a little bit more about Wayne in a couple of moments, I'm sure it'll come up in discussion. (laughs) Right. We came into a unit that had just come off a tour in Afghanistan. And as you can appreciate, after two years or so under the previous commanding officer who did great work with the battalion, but in a very, very stressful time of hardship and so on in taking the battalion or the battle group at that time overseas to Afghanistan, very traumatic experience with loss of life and so on within the unit. So to come back from that and rebuild that battalion back to what I remembered 3RCR to be as a unit, as a great unit that it is, not to take anything away from what they did over there. Of course, they did tremendous things in Afghanistan, certainly. But the battalion was in need for a restructure in a way and kind of a rebuild into what would now be life as they knew it in Petawawa. So that was the first challenge, and that was to transition from operational battle group mode to back to light infantry core soldier skills mode within the brigade in Petawawa. So that was challenge number one, and that's never an easy challenge. This is not a unique dynamic to 3RCR. I mean, every battle group, I would suggest, goes through this when they come back off operations. So that was challenge number one, and that took some time, but we were able to achieve some great things there. And then that rolled right into mounting Oscar Company to attach to the next rotation of the Afghanistan mission to be attached to one RCR battle group. So rebuilding from the individuals within the battalion that didn't necessarily come off of Task Force 308 to piece them together, to put them together in a cohesive company level team so I could give them to Conrad Malkowski to take to Afghanistan. So in a way, we're rebuilding from Afghanistan, but we're building for Afghanistan at the same time, which is a little bit of a unique dynamic. And we were able to do that. And Oscar Company went off and did great things under Conrad Malkowski's command with 1RCR Battle Group. And I guess thirdly, I would say while this is all going on, we're ramping towards being the primary security battalion for the G8 Summit in Huntsville. Oh, right. Yes, of course. And that culminated, obviously, in the summer of 2010. So that's where my priority focus was on the domestic ops side. And we did great stuff 
stuff in partnership with our law enforcement partners and our other government departments to become that battalion group for the G8 summit in Huntsville in 2010 with a little connection into the G20, but really focused on the G8. And that took a lot of preparation, a lot of planning with their police partners and so on. And not to mention bringing in two companies of reserves to augment the battalion group as well as a squadron of Coyote and so on from the RCD and the engineers and the like. So in a way, we had several things simultaneously on the go, focused all on operations and some overseas and some domestically. So it was an exciting time. And that was the flow of operations or activities within the battalion at the same time, reinvigorating basic soldier skills, light infantry skills, parachute skill set, air mobile, and that sort of thing that 3R Share is known for. So it was an exciting time, busy time, but an exciting time. And I credit the great leadership of the individuals in the battalion to pull all that off. Well, since we're talking about individuals, let's move on to the next question, sir. Who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered during your service? Once again, I got two sort of perspectives here and two individuals I'd just like to highlight and completely different ends of the spectrum. I'd mentioned Wayne Bartlett, my RSM. Uh, Maybe I'll come back to him in a moment, but first uh, kick off with a guy everybody knows, and that is General Rick Hillier. I was fortunate enough as a young, well, I guess not so young, a mid-level captain to be appointed his EA while he was the brigade commander of 2 Brigade when I had come back from an RSS posting with the Cape Breton Highlanders. So I was officially with 3RCR, but I spent just under a year as his EA and brigade headquarters while he was a one-star. And a brilliant man, a great leader, and influenced me. I I learned a lot from him. And his leadership style, his personality really had an impact on me as far as what I would do, I think, later on in my career once I took command of a company and a battalion. There was some influence there that I think to this day still sticks with me. And I doubt that I'm alone in that regard. He has had a tremendous impact on a lot of people. (laughs) Both in and out of uniform, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I look up to him not only as a great leader and a great man, but also as a mentor and someone that you can really learn from. Just the style that he has with everything he does. So that was a, uh, and I should point out that we did some good stuff when I was a ZA and collectively as a brigade uh, the, uh, that was during the ice storm, the floods and the ice storm, Winnipeg floods, although I just missed that by a couple of months. I certainly got the ice storm under our belts while I was a ZA, so I learned a lot from him on a domestic operation front. And I think that his command of the ice storm influenced the way I commanded the battalion during the G8 summit, right. without doubt that domestic ops sort of operational spin you have to put on things. I learned a lot from my young captain days and then later on, many years later, as a lieutenant colonel commanding in a domestic ops scenario. So I credit him and I still from time to time run into him and I look up to him as the individual that he is. The second individual that I do want to highlight and again, learned a tremendous amount from this man, and that's Chief Warrant Officer Wayne Bartlett. Me too, sir. Retired as a, uh, yeah, you you knew him as well, I suspect, Certainly. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. He retired as a captain. I CFR'd him shortly after we parted ways after battalion command team time, and, and then he went off to the infantry school. But I was fortunate enough to work with Wayne several times over my life. First, when I was the OPSO in 3RCR, and then 3RCR Battle Group when we went to Bosnia for the second time. So I was a young major, as the battle group ops, so and Wayne was my ops warrant, both in garrison and on operations in Bosnia. So that was kind of the first time I really worked closely with Wayne, me as a major, him as a warrant officer, tremendous soldier. 
everyone in the unit looked up to him. There was no doubt that he was going to be a regimental sergeant major at some point. He was just <laughs> that sort of individual. And then, of course, I came back. Well, we both came back from tour. That was Roto 8 Bosnia, S4. And I was fortunate enough to be appointed officer commanding parachute company. And lo and behold, when the switch arounds of sergeant majors happened, Wayne had just been promoted to sergeant major, and then he became my company sergeant major in parachute company, which was awesome <laughs> to have him by my side. It's kind of a continuation of the command team dynamic, if I can say that, at the company level. Right. I call it the command team echo. When you work with someone at the platoon level and then company level and regimental level, it's a very unique phenomenon. Some people don't get to experience it. Absolutely. And those that are fortunate enough to have that great relationship as a command team, it makes all the world in the difference, not just for the individuals, but for the unit as well. So then fast forward a number of years, I'm now back in the battalion or being appointed to battalion command. And I didn't have any say really in who my regimental sergeant major was going to be. I mean, the regiment decides that. But the powers that be in the regiment at the time, I don't know if it just worked out or if they had recognized the synergy that Wayne and I had together. And uh, I would like to think it was the latter. Right. And they pointed Wayne. And I got to tell you, I was uh, tremendously happy to hear when I got the phone call saying that my RSM was going to be Wayne Bartlett. (laughs) So sure enough, we showed up together and took over as a command team together, 3RCR, and then left together two years later. Yeah, he's a great soldier, always was, always will be, and learned a lot from him from not just a senior NCO soldier perspective, but also from a life perspective as well. And a tremendous individual, a whole great respect for him. Now, I know many of the stories that happen between command team partners cannot be shared and absolutely should not be shared. But is there an anecdote or a story or a recollection of your time with Chief Warrant Officer Bartlett before or after his appointment as RSM that you can tell the listeners? Yeah, I think this one's pretty mundane, but being a little bit older than the rest of the members of the battalion, of course, just the way that the short hallway command team dynamic sort of is. Of course, we're down, well, I sent Parachute Company down to work a joint operational access exercise with 82nd Airborne Division. And of course, Wayne and I needed to go down and see how they were doing and link up with them. So it had been a while at that point since I had strapped a parachute on my back, I'll be honest. And Wayne, although he had done it a couple times, same thing. And we're getting up there a little bit in body and age, you know what I mean? <laughs> so we go down there fully intending to, uh, when the opportunity presents itself, to parachute with the company. So that was a memorable moment and not overly dramatic, but certainly being down there to jump with the younger generation, if I can say that, right. of the parachute community. And seeing an old dog like Wayne, who I must admit is far more experienced in the parachute realm than I ever was, just with his time in the Airborne Regiment and along the way, But certainly we both had that dynamic and that specialty and that passion. I will admit it was a little bit of a painful jump on (laughs) landing, but as you get older, it always is. But then I had the honor of pinning Canadian wings on a bunch of our American counterparts with Wayne. Oh, excellent. That was a great experience and something that kind of stands out in my memory as a recent experience with him. Certainly. Sir, we've reached the final question. What was the greatest challenge you had to overcome during your service? Yeah, there's probably several, but one that really stands out for me, and it, uh, it was From a personal standpoint, I felt like I was letting my soldiers and my subunit down, although I was assured after that I did not. So it really came down to a leadership challenge. And when I left 3RCR in 2003, early 2003, right after Parachute Company Command, and as I mentioned before, that ultimately ended up sending me to Ottawa University to upgrade my education. One of the reasons I left, and I did so after discussion with then commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Don Denny. I uh, had a parachuting accident, not a significant one. It was more degenerative than it was significant in one shot. 
we just come off an exercise and I had woke up the next morning and the exercise ended on a Friday and I woke up at home on Saturday morning in the middle of the night and my wife happens to be a nurse and she said something's not right and I said you're right I couldn't move the left side of my body I was kind of paralyzed hmm. or partially paralyzed so obviously went to the hospital or the doc and had myself checked out by then the motion had come back but something wasn't right so on Monday, of course, I got all checked out through the medical system. And in the end, the doc said, you know what, the parachuting thing's got to stop or you're going to really hurt yourself, potentially long term. So, of course, I didn't like that answer. And none right. of us do, right? I mean, that's just the way we are as soldiers. We want to soldier on regardless of what's happening to the body. But I had to come to a recognition that maybe I needed to pause to let myself recuperate because that was kind of a wake-up call for me on the medical front. And it was degenerative over time with my back and so on. So ultimately, the leadership challenge there was going to my commanding officer and acknowledging to him that, you know what, I, I got to step back from company command because I can't, uh, I can't do what I need to do physically to stay in line and lead the soldiers. So I had to stand in front of my company. And uh, now I had already had a good run. So it was career progression-wise, it was time for me to go off to university and do other things anyway at that particular moment. But it was a difficult, a very emotional experience to stand in front of your company with your sergeant major at your side and admit that you need to take a knee. Right. And that's what I did. And, and ultimately, over the years beyond that, there wasn't a single individual that, as it turned out, thought that was the wrong thing to do or looked down on me because of that. And, and that's good to know. But at the time, it felt it was very, it was very challenging to do because I actually had to admit to my soldiers and myself more uh, just equally that I needed to take that knee. And it was time for me to do that. Now, there was a fortunate recipient of that decision, and that's the, the successor. Major John Vass came in to command the company. He was a, a solid friend of mine and a fantastic officer. So I was leaving the company in good hands with my successor, and I was happy about that aspect. At the same time, it was a challenging moment for me uh, along my career path. Obviously got through it, but that would stand out, I guess, as, as probably my biggest challenge from a personal standpoint and also from a leadership standpoint. I should point out that John Vass ultimately went off to command the Canadian Special Operations Regiment down the oh, road. So uh, he's uh, another great friend and colleague and someone else that I have tremendous respect for. Certainly. Now, sir, we've come to the end of the four questions. What are you working on now or what's going on in your life at this point? I know you've released from the Canadian Forces honorably and you've taken on new challenges. Yeah, I think I shocked a few people last year, almost a year ago now. I had been thinking about second career paths, what I might want to do post-military. I always told myself that when I stopped having fun or the passion was coming out of it a bit for me personally, maybe it was time to consider doing something else. So I reached a point where I had almost 26 years of service and I looked back at the run that I had. I had a fantastic experiences, was fortunate enough to command, ultimately was promoted to colonel. I had surpassed my own expectations of where I had anticipated to be in my career. And I, I just thought to myself, you know what, maybe it's time to look for other opportunity, a little bit of stability for on the family side of life for my wife, stop moving around so much and so on. So I chose to pursue an opportunity with Canada Company and ultimately was successful in that pursuit, which resulted in a relatively short notice release from the Canadian Armed Forces. And I'm now the director of the Military Employment Transition Program at Canada Company and really focused on assisting 
other members of the CAF, whether they be reservists or regular, and now spouses is one of the projects we're working on here as well, solidify civilian opportunities when it's the right time for them to do so. And that's what the program is all about, and, and it's a great team here based in Toronto, but certainly it's a national program and very happy to know that I'm giving back and helping out other members of the military community as they navigate what can for some be a challenging pathway. And that is what they're going to do next in life after they decide to get out of uniform and pursue a second career. Or conversely, if it's a medical release or so on and they don't have a choice, that can be a challenging dynamic for individuals. So very proud to be doing what we're doing here at Canada Company. And for me, it was a it was just the right time. I had a fantastic run and in uniform and now it was time to go off and do something else. Excellent. And I know there are so many success stories based out of programs like yours that help veterans transition into the civilian workforce. And definitely yours is one of those that produces many success stories, soldiers entering trades, soldiers entering the business field, depending on what they're bringing to the table. And it's so great to have an asset like that. When you do have that soldier that you don't know what to do with, you don't know how to guide them in their life, you can turn them over to agencies such as yours and get them on that proper path. I really appreciate that type of service. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. And as you say, we're not the only one, the only organization in this space, but we're certainly one of the prominent ones. And we do partner with several others that are out there as well, where it makes sense to do so. And there's a a lot of resources out there, both in government and, and in the private sector that are there to help. And we're there to help when the time is right for the individual. And that time comes for everybody generally. It just depends on where along their career path it hits. Certainly. Sir, I would like to give you the opportunity to summarize your episode. I thank you for having me on. It's sometimes it's nice just to recap your own bio a little bit. I mean, you write one, but you never have a chance to kind of talk through it. So I do just want to highlight the people that I mentioned along the way that have influenced me and I've been lucky enough to serve with over the years. As I said, I had a great run. I'm still connected into the military fold, which is a nice piece of my new role and makes transition a little easier and allows me to be connected. And, and I also, Mike, want to thank you for what you're doing with your podcast, because I think it's really important to openly shed some light on the experiences of men and women who have served and who continue to serve and their experiences just to make more people aware, both internally and externally, of the life paths and the challenges and rewards that military service can bring. So thank you for doing what you're doing too. Well, you're very welcome, sir. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be a guest on the show. I know it was a long time coming, a long time planning back and forth between our different travels and schedules trying to align, but it's great timing. And thanks again for making this happen. My pleasure. Take care, sir. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at cmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. 
Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike LaCroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike LaCroix Production.